0: to look at some of these things that James encourages us to, these uh, imperatives that he gives us in response to the grace of God in our lives. And uh, verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so I'd like to speak to you today about clear thinking. How many of you would love to be able to think clearly about everything? Me too, alright? So James is giving us some some clues here in the this, in this second half of this uh, verse of how to think clearly. I could have called it pure hands and a clean heart or clean hands and a pure heart, but I chose to call it clear thinking because that's the underlying thing that James is trying to talk to us about. Remember in the first couple of chapters he talked about double-mindedness and where you're, you're not quite sure where you stand and you're double-minded and it muddles your thinking. And so now he's going to talk to us this morning about thinking clearly And uh, this is in the context of chapter 4. And chapter 4, as we've been looking over the last three or four weeks, James is encouraging us, he's urging us, he's imploring us to take these positive steps to stop being baby Christians and to grow up and become mature Christians. The other way you could look at it is to stop walking by the flesh, but walking by the Spirit, start walking by the Spirit of God in our lives. And that's what he's trying to encourage us to do. And so... He gives a number of imperatives to us. They're kind of, uh, they're commands to us. But at the same time, they are invitations. So that's kind of the best way I can think of describing an imperative. And so they're very positively put. He says, humble yourself. He says, submit yourself. He says, resist the devil. He says, draw near to God. And we've been looking at those things over the last month. But really what he's talking about is putting something into practice in our lives out of a joyful obedience to the grace of God in our lives, so that we too can be called friends of God, like Abraham was called a friend of God. Remember, we looked at that. That's the the theme of what he's trying to explore and unpack for us. And to be a friend of God, to be someone that's cultivating an intimacy with God, certainly means that, for a start, we need to tame those desires that rage in each of us, for selfishness and for to get our own way and to um, that our opinion is is the loudest and all those kind of things. And what does James said? He said already. He said, Why do you fight and why do you quarrel? Why do you insist on having your way? All of these things are at war because your your heart is at war within you, and you pray with the wrong motive, and you don't get what you want. And so, basically, James is trying to encourage us that we don't pray for our own pleasure; that we pray for God's glory. And he talked about spiritual adultery. He said, that's really what spiritual adultery is, is when we're double-minded. We're half in the world and we're half in the, in the kingdom and, and we can't kind of make up our minds what we want. And then we kind of live this confused life. Yes? So this is the main theme of, of what James, James has been um, trying to explore. And in particular, in chapter 4, which we've been looking at for the last month, the particular thing that he's exploring is Humility was something that was lacking in his day. And I want to say to you, I think humility is lacking in our day. Everyone wants their opinion to be the loudest. Everyone thinks they know, they, they know best about everything. There's an arrogance in our, in our culture that is opposite to what the gospel says God has for our lives. And so that's what James has been driving at. He's saying this kind of arrogance of wanting to get your own way, that's what makes you fight and quarrel. That's what makes you bash your heads in the church. And so he's called us, he said, no, 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 the antidote to that, the cure to that, he's been exploring with us, he said, the cure to that is submit to God, the cure to that is resist the devil, submit to God, as you submit to him, the devil will flee, and peace will be the result in our lives. And so we can't really even attempt to to look at that without at least examining ourselves in some way, and I'm not a person that's introversion at all. But I do think some healthy self-examination is a good thing from time to time. And so all these things that I've been trying to describe are the very things that James says are the desires that draw us away from God who wants to be our friend. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that these simple things I've just said this morning, like submitting to God, drawing near to Him, resisting the devil, if we really take those seriously, that could be the agenda of, of our lives for the next six months. If we really, really consider what James is saying. And that there's not a flippancy that we kind of, in five minutes, say, oh yeah, God, I'll submit to you, resist the devil, done, dusted, give God a nod, give him a handshake, and move on with our lives. That's not what James is talking about. He's saying if we are like that, there's a double mindedness in our lives. And uh, that's why James is calling us to this clear thinking, to try and think clearly. I want to say to you this morning, there's a big difference between joy, eternal joy that we had looked at a couple of weeks ago, and self-satisfied happiness. They are very different roads. Being double-minded means just that, that we give God a quick nod, we do our duty for five minutes, we do a little devotion in the morning, and then we walk on, arm in arm with the world. He's not, that's, not, that's not what God is calling us to. That word through Pauline this morning, it was an, God is calling us, he's drawing us near, he's saying, come away with me, I, I, my love, come away with me. Come away. There's an intimacy he's calling us to. There's much more that he's calling us to than, a, than a, a, a very thin kind of relationship with him. This is what James is saying. The way to eternal joy starts on this road of allowing God to change us, and then our thinking starts to clear. And so he says this thing. He says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. There's two, two things in this little sentence. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Remember, James is really after two things in this chapter. He's after the outward witness of these Christians. He's most concerned that the witness that these Christians have had to the world is a bad one because they've been fighting, they've been quarreling, they've been preferring the rich over the poor. They've been saying, we like some people in this church and we don't like other people. And so they've been saying, no, no, that's a bad witness to the world. And he's most concerned about their witness to the world. And then inwardly, for them personally, he's concerned that they are double-minded. He's trying to help them to see that double-mindedness is not the way forward. He's trying to help them to see that actually, really, what God wants is all of our lives... Not just part of our lives. He wants all of our lives. And that does affect and change everything. (laughs) And so you can't be half a Christian and half not a Christian. You you can't be half in the kingdom and half out of the kingdom. When you are in the kingdom, when God has radically transformed your life, everything changes. And that's why many Christians are unhappy. And are restless. And are... All over the place with their lives, never satisfied. Why? Because they're not fully, wholeheartedly sold out for the kingdom. They're half like the world. Are you with me? And this is really what James is trying to say. He says, "Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts." You know, that's very interesting language to me because in the Old Testament, when you read the Psalms, when you read many of the Psalms, there's two things I said in the Psalms: "Cleanse your hands." Purify your heart. David was a skillful leader with skillful hands and a pure heart. What do our hands speak of? What we do. What does our heart speak of? Our inner personality, uh, the things that motivate us. So James is saying, your hands need to be clean, what you do, and the inner motivation of your heart needs to change. It is both. That's what he's trying to say. It's interesting to me that he starts with our behavior first. Don't you find that fascinating? Uh, He starts with our behavior first. Really, in the context of what he's been saying to his friends, he's trying to say to them, stop discriminating against the poor. Stop preferring people in the church. Stop saying, I'm with that leader, I'm not with that leader. Stop that stuff. That is just sinful. Stop it. Yep. He's saying stop. Stop. He's kind of trying to say, "Well, you really are Christians, so start behaving like Christians." <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's saying, "You have faith in Christ, you put all your faith in the blood of the cross. So now, what God has done on the cross through Jesus, it's let it happen in your life. put to death some things. Then he says, we have to deal with our hearts. Because you see, it's not just about stopping doing things that are wrong. We have to take the time to let God change our hearts. You see, and that's what I was trying to say this morning. So often in our meetings, and I want to encourage you as we meet together, we don't always have to have contributions. Yeah? In the worship. Sometimes we just need to worship and let God change our hearts by His Spirit. Of course it's about doing good things and right things and living in a way that pleases Him. But at the same time, we've got to take the time to let God change our hearts. And you know what I want to say to you? Sometimes we don't want to sit quietly. We don't want to hear God because we don't really want to change our hearts. And we know that when we are quiet, He will speak to us. And when He speaks to us, we're going to say, Okay, God, what do I do with that? I want to say the three reasons this morning why James puts it in that order. Purify, uh, cleanse your hands and purify your heart. The first is this. James is most concerned about the priority of the kingdom of God. That's his highest priority, is the kingdom of God. He is primarily concerned with the kingdom of God and the reputation of the kingdom of God more than he is concerned with the personal peace and affluence of every single individual Christian. When I say that, I want to put a little caveat. Of course God is concerned with every person. Of course God is concerned with every sheep. The Scripture is full of things saying like Jesus, Jesus used the parable, said God goes after the one sheep. He's very concerned with the one. But James' logic here is that he's saying, as we think of the millions, as we think of the kingdom, as our hearts are enlarged for all of God's people and everything that God is doing... He takes care of the one. That's what he's trying to say. We start with the kingdom. We start with the big picture, and then God, as we consider the bigness of what God is doing, He has a heart for all the world, the whole, every person in the world, then the individual is taken care of. But if we start with the individual, the big thing is lost. And so, he's, as he's talking about this, the priority of the kingdom, James touches on something which is an eternal and unchangeable principle, and I want to ask that you remember this this morning. It's simply this. If you choose to put God's priorities first in your life, if you choose to put the priority of the kingdom of God first in your life, you will be the one that benefits the most. You will be the one that benefits the most. You know what we do, though? We put our own priorities first and the kingdom last in the hope that God is going to meet all our needs as we selfishly do what we want to do. Scripture is completely the opposite. It says, seek the kingdom first. Consider others better than yourself. Live for other people. And as you live for others in the kingdom of God, something changes on the inside of you and God meets all your needs anyway. Selfishness has never, ever been a virtue that has been uh, by any culture in all of history that I can think of, that has been valued as something that is good. Never, even in pagan cultures, selfishness is never valued. Living for yourself is never valued, and it's not a value of the kingdom. You see, the priority of the kingdom has to come in our hearts as we go forward. God is jealous for his reputation. God is jealous for the reputation of Christians in the world. He's most concerned for those that preach the gospel, that live the gospel, that uphold the name of His Son. And when James calls his friends sinners here and saying they are being disobedient, it's because he's calling a spade a spade. He's not trying to sweep things under the carpet. The reputation of Christianity is not ever enhanced by trying to sweep things under the carpet. All the stuff that's coming out at the moment about... um, In in the last five years, we've had all the stuff about sexual immorality in the church and and abuse. You you know why it's coming out? Because God is most concerned about His reputation in the world. He's concerned about His reputation in the kingdom, about the kingdom. He doesn't want things to be swept under the carpet and to pretend they're not there. He wants all things that are in, in darkness to come out into the light. I'm not saying that in a vindictive way. I'm saying that because God is most concerned about His kingdom, about His reputation, and about the reputation of Christians. Remember Acts, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They were struck dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And it became known everywhere. You know why it became known everywhere? You know why it was written down? Because those early Christians had given God a bad name they Ananias and Sapphira were not jealous for the name of God they were jealous for their own motives that's what they were they were being motivated by and here James is saying to these Christians you've given God a bad name you've discriminated you've fought with each other you've you've just been bad boys <laughs> and girls you've behaved in an immature way and he says stop it that's what he says that grieve the spirit of God and you see, when we, are, when we continue to live in sin, when we continue to not respond to the Holy Spirit, and we continue to be disobedient, and we know the things that we should be dealing with, and we don't, you know what happens? Is that we become divided in our minds. That's what James is saying. You can't live in a divided state in your mind, and sin always brings confusion into our minds. And so, this is the first thing James is trying to say. Live for the glory of the kingdom. The second thing he's trying to say is this. God is most concerned about the glory of his name as well. What do you think Christianity is about? What do you think Christianity is about? Maybe you could just take some time to consider that. What do you really think Christianity is about? I've been amazed over 20 years now, full-time ministry, how many people think that Christianity really is there The big picture of Christianity is there to make so that God can fulfill their needs and give them a comfortable life. That's the basic motivation of many, many Christians. That God is really there to help us through our problems. I want to say God is there to help you through your problems. Absolutely. But that is not the primary reason that God wants to work in your life just to help you through your problems. The primary concern that God has in, the, in why we are, exist as Christians is for the glory of His name. That's why you and I are on this planet. Not to have our needs met and to just carry on living. And being comfortable. No, God, we are here on this planet. We've been created to do good works. We've been created because God wants us to have relationship with Him, and He is concerned for His name, His glory in the, in the, in the universe. That's what He's most concerned about. And that's why we are here as Christians. You know, uh, it's also been interesting to me over the years to see how many people cite personal advantage as the best reason and sometimes the only reason to obey God. So I've heard this over and over. I give, I tithe, I, um, I pray so that God will bless me. There's also, there's also churches that will say things like this. We're trusting God for a 100 people to be saved this year so God will bless us. The primary motivation is I want blessing. I don't believe that's the gospel. This is the great irony, though. This is the great... Uh, maybe this word is irony. God does bless you even when you give with the wrong motive. <laughs> he blesses you. That's, that's the irony. Uh, I don't give, I don't give because, because I don't want my washing machine to break and all that kind of stuff, those things I've used before. But you know what's amazing? is when I honor God with my money... Somehow, my washing machine keeps going. <laughs> this is the great irony. You see, when God, when you honor God in a practical way, He honors you, even if, even if you're doing it for the wrong motive. You know what the irony is? It's when people say, we want, to, we want to see 100 people saved. You know what? They do see 100 people saved. And God does bless them. This is the amazing thing. And yet, it's not the primary motivation of Christianity. I mean, you might have an amazing testimony of how God is God has um, sorted all your problems and God has healed you and that's all wonderful and uh, it's a marvelous thing to have a testimony like that. But I'm still saying to you that the primary reason that we exist as Christians is for the glory of the kingdom and the glory of God's name, not what he does for us. What he does for us is a secondary thing because he loves us. And I want to say to you, when, when we put the kingdom first, when the priority in our lives is the glory of God's name, our hearts are purified, our motives change, they dealt with, we do become single-minded. And the third thing I, I believe James is saying in this little portion is the third reason why he puts it in that order of cleansing your hands and purifying your heart is because double-mindedness is dangerous. It's dangerous. I don't think it's possible to have peace of mind. It's not possible to have a single-minded focus in your life when you are serving both the devil and the world and trying to serve Jesus at the same time. It is impossible to have that kind of peace and single-minded focus. Remember this. We always be, we behave in certain ways because of what we believe and what we think. That's why the Bible talks all the time. If you want to change your behavior, if you want to live differently, the best way to do it is to ask the Holy Spirit to renew your mind. Because when you renew your mind and you start to think differently and the motives of your, of your heart start to change, your behavior, the overflow of that is changed behavior. And yet legalism, legalism in the church says, change your behavior and it's going to change your heart. It never works like that. You can't put rules on people and expect them to behave differently until the heart is changed, until the Holy Spirit has transformed us from the inside, and then we want to live differently because we know God loves us. Some of you who've been in this church for a while have probably heard these things a thousand times. But I'm, I'm absolutely committed to the gospel changing me every single day of my life, and I want to encourage you to allow the gospel to change you every single day, your life. See, how can we identify double-mindedness in our lives? How how do we know when we're double-minded? There's two things I want to say to you this morning. Firstly, when you're confused. When you don't know what to do. When you are continually living in this place of confusion. Not sure what you want. Don't know how to motivate yourself. You're completely confused. We don't really know where you're going. And James says, when you're like that, when you're double-minded, you are unstable in all of your ways. Isn't that true? When you, when you can't, you don't have a single-minded focus, all of your life unravels and everything gets so complicated. Have you ever noticed that? The first symptom in our lives that we are double-minded is when we are confused. And the second symbol, s- s- symptom that we can see in the church is that there's division in the church. When there's a double-mindedness, there's a division in the church. There's cliques in the church. Some people don't like to speak to these people, and the Holy Spirit guys don't like to speak to the Word guys, and and all that. Double-mindedness. And what James is driving at also, secondly, is that he's saying... There's a double-mindedness when we can't make up our minds whether we fully want to serve God or whether we actually love the world too much. And so we kind of got a foot in both camps. That's the double-mindedness he's driving at. And he says all of that stuff causes confusion. So I want to say to you this morning, if you know that there's confusion in your life, if you're kind of feeling like you're unsettled, and just, just say, God, am I being double-minded about something? Because your word says... that from the peace the wisdom from heaven is peace joy single mindedness all these things god if i'm not feeling these in my life surely there's something wrong that i need to put trust you to put right what james is saying is this is that double mindedness the root of all double mindedness is sin and that's why he flat out calls them sinners he says purify your hearts you double minded wash your hands you sinners these are his friends he's not he's not beating them up He's just saying, recognize there's something wrong. So you first have to start dealing with the sin, and then we can purify our hearts. You know, I'm convinced. That's why there's so much woolly thinking in the church, so much woolly thinking, such extremes in the church. On the one hand, you can have lifeless orthodoxy on the one hand. And on the other hand, you can have absolute heresy and it's all this huge spectrum is there for Christians. No wonder Christians are confused and feel helpless. But what do we believe? The cause of all of that is sin. The cause of all of that is a failure to put the kingdom first, to uphold the name of God above everything else. That's the cause of that. And God said in 1 Samuel 2.30, He says this, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise to your house and the house of your father that they should go on, in and out, before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. There's the conditional promise that I spoke to you about last week. This Bible is full of conditional promises. not to do with our salvation, to do with our intimacy with him. If you honor me, I will honor you. And those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. In other words, God says, I won't give them priority. Those that don't honor me. Those that do, I will honor. And so this is James' basic theological position in this portion of Scripture. Once someone has come to Christ, once you have come to Christ, once I've come to Christ, we can only get right with God by our faith in the blood of of Jesus, what He's done for us on the cross. That's the only thing that gets us right with God is what Jesus has done. Do you agree with me on that? That's what we preach the gospel in this church. That's what we believe. However, what James is saying is it doesn't just stop at the cross because there's a joyful obedience that comes in the lives of those that love Jesus where their lives start to be transformed and come into line with the fullness of what Christ has done already on the cross. That's called sanctification. That's what it's called. That's the theological word. That's why he says, good, you've repented. You've come to Christ. You've you've put all your faith in the grace of God. Now cleanse your hands. You get what I'm saying? Now, you, by your will, you do something in your life to do all that you can so that what Christ has done on the cross is real and living and your experience in your life. So you might say to me, Ant, God's already cleansed us. It's not what we do. God's already cleansed us. And you're absolutely right. God has already cleansed us. Acts 15.9 He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Ephesians 2.5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. There's the word again, sanctification. Having cleansed her, past tense, by the washing of the water of the words. Um, These things are all true by grace. Uh, Absolutely, that's what I hold to with all of my heart. These things are true by grace. In John 15, 3, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. I agree with you. Uh, uh, We're already clean. Absolutely already clean. But what James is saying is complementary to that. He's saying this, because you have received grace, because you know what it means to have your sins washed away from you, as far as the east is, from the west Now, because you know that, because that's the reality of your life, because you've been set free by that, now, do all that you can while you're walking on the earth to flee every temptation, to put to death every sin in your life, to wash your hands, to not keep on doing the things that you know displease God, not because you're trying to get saved, but because you love Him and you want to live your life for Him. not the same thing. That's the only way we can be single-minded when we start to live like like that. Flee every temptation. There's two ways we can reject the Word of God. Two ways. For the non-Christian, the biggest obstacle to the Word of God is that the Christian faith says that all you need to do to be saved is to believe on Jesus. You don't have to do anything. That is a stumbling block. You know why that's a stumbling block? Because we live in a world that says, actually, we are good people. We're actually quite nice. And uh, we've actually got something to bring. And so we bring all of the wonderful things that we are to the cross. And the Christian faith says, actually, no, no you don't. You bring nothing. All your righteous deeds are full. It's offensive to humanistic thinking. That's why the cross is so offensive. That's why people say, I, I don't believe that. Why? Because there's something good about me. I, I'm a nice person. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm a good guy. Are you saying that I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel? Yes, I'm saying you are a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Just like me. Every single one of us. Not one of us, the Scripture says. There's not even one, the Psalms say, that have had a heart after God. Not one. Don't think you are the exception, because the Scripture says there are no exceptions. We are all in the same boat. We are all in desperate need of a Savior. That's why people reject the gospel. It's offensive. Their pride. And the second way that we can reject the word is what James is trying to say to us here. We can reject the word by trying to pretend that there is not a vindication that comes like there was a vindication for Abraham. Remember? He offered up his son, and God said, Now I can see that you fear me. You are my. Friend, what I'm going to try and say, there was a vindication. The cross was vindicated in Abraham's life, Genesis 15, when he got saved. There was a vindication in his life because he began to walk with God in obedience and it was imperfect and we've said all of this stuff before, but there came a time where he he offered up to God what was most precious to him in the whole world and God says, now I can see you love me. And he calls him friend. You hear what I'm saying? We can't pretend... That we can just camp at the cross forever. I love the gospel. Absolutely. That's what I want to give my life to preaching. I want to preach the grace and the goodness and the kindness of God. What I'm saying once we've experienced the kindness and the grace and the goodness of God, at the same time, there must be a joyful obedience, a response. Well, I can't even say must. uh, (laughs) I can't force you to obey God. You choose. You might be saved, you might be going to heaven. But there's so much more for us on this earth and eternity as we joyfully, obediently walk with him. His burden is not heavy, it is light. And we begin to experience something much, much more of the kingdom. And you see, I believe that what James is saying here is absolutely essential for us as believers. Because it will keep us from two things, and I've said this before. A sterile, orthodox belief that has no life, that has no spirit. it will keep us from that on the one hand, and it will keep us also from an absolutely irresponsible, ungodly life on the other, if we'll learn to walk in the way that James is saying, that we should walk. James wants us to see that God has done all that we need in Christ, and we celebrate that with all of our hearts, But God also wants from his friends, he wants an active obedience in our lives, a joyful active obedience in our lives that we leave behind everything that we know is sin. Everything that we know is causing us to fall into temptation. That's why he says, once you've experienced the grace of God, cleanse your hands. Do all that you can to flee. I love what R.T. says, R.T. Kendall because remember, James is not talking about being saved. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about how we live. And, and R.T. says a wonderful thing. He says, the heart, of our, the, the heart is the seat of saving faith. In other words, God always starts. When He saves us, He starts in our heart. What was dead, He brings alive. Yeah, By the power of His Spirit when we are born again. But, He says this, The will is the seat of experimental faith. In other words, how we experience God in our lives has much to do with our will. If we want stable mind, we want clear thinking, then we have to start exercising our will. We are saved by doing nothing. I believe that with all my heart. Now that you are saved, you start to do something. What you start to do is you start to joyfully obey God as He reveals to you by His Spirit what needs to change in your life. You joyfully obey. That's how it works. Saved by faith, joyful, happy obedience because of grace. That's how it works. How long have I been going? Too long? Because I've got another, just a couple of points. Is that right? (laughs) So how do, we, how do we cleanse our hands? Well, there are three C's I have for you. One, conviction. Two, contrition. Three, confession. That's how we cleanse our hands. You know there's some issues in your life. This is how you, this is how you deal with them. Now, I want to start with the last one. I want to start with confession. Because confession is the verbalization that you are sorry for what you have done, the way you have been. When you confess something, that's what it means. But I'm not talking about a ritual. I'm not talking about confession in the Roman Catholic sense, is that you actually go to the confessional, you say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned, and you just kind of say all the stuff, and then you leave again, and your behavior, your life, doesn't change. That's a ritual. That's not what James is saying. He says what comes before that is contrition. What is contrition? Contrition is the awareness that what you have done has hurt God and has hurt other people. That's what it means to have a contrite heart. It means you've got a, a humble heart. You're not walking arrogantly. There's a humility. And what comes before that, James says, is conviction. It has to come first. The Holy Spirit with his, with his, his laser scalpel, he just comes and says, that thing. And you say, oh yes, God, I know, I'm so sorry. And you are convicted of that. As you are convicted of that, there is a contrition that comes which says, I am aware that what I've done, Lord, has hurt other people. And that also needs to come. And then there's the confession. And when you confess, what you actually are saying is, God, I'm walking away from that. I, I don't want that anymore. I choose, that's what we said, metanoia. To walk completely opposite direction, away from the thing that you know has hurt God and hurt other people. You walk away from it with all that you can in your With with the act of your will, with a joyful obedience, with passion, you walk away from it. And you see, I I, I believe this. I've seen this many, many times over. Some people have an assurance of their salvation and they have a peace that is just settled and sure. And I believe there's a link between being sure of your salvation and obedience. I believe there is a link. Our hearts are always the seat of saving faith. God always saves us by grace in our hearts. But I want to say this to you. If Once you're saved, if you continue to be a worldly, double-minded Christian, if you continue to um, walk in ways that you know displease God, you know what happens? It backfires, on your, you, your, it backfires on you. And what happens is that you begin to think, was I ever saved in the first place? Your own confidence of your salvation is undermined if you continue to walk in disobedience. I'm not saying we ever lose our salvation, but I am saying that sin can so affect our hearts that we become confused about our own salvation. And I've had many conversations over the years with people on this very, very issue. And it is linked with how much we joyfully obey. You see, our sanctification, I believe it, it has a lot to do with preparing our hearts and so that we can see Jesus clearly in how we live. What I'm trying to say is that James, he says there's something called sin that, jam, that it jams the network of the assurance of our salvation being transmitted through our lives, to the world. When we are sinful, that network gets all scrambled, it gets all, it gets all jammed up. And when sin is removed, when we do all that we can to flee from sin, it purifies our hearts, we can see Jesus more clearly, it energizes us, and then we do wonderful things for Him as we allow Him to deal with sin and our lives. That's why I've met a number of people in my life that I would say are godly people, and these people have this, this thing in their lives. They have learned a joyful obedience. Nothing seems to get them down, no matter whether their circumstances are good or bad. Nothing seems to get them down and because they have this joyful assurance in their lives they have this effective energy as well and they're not up and down up and down up and down there's a consistency there's a joyful energy there's an obedience that comes and this is what i'm trying to say to you, i believe james is saying it's not that that person is more saved than you it's not that that person is more justified than you it's just that their transmitter is less scrambled than yours <laughs> Because they are, out of obedience in their lives, are learning to walk by the Spirit. That's all it is. So they're not more saved than you. They're not more righteous than you or me. They're not more spiritual. No, their are transmitters, just more effective. They're not being jammed by sin. They're quick to repent. Quick to say, sorry, God cleansed me. And that's what God is calling us all to. So lastly then, why does James add that we must purify our hearts? So, all this stuff, hoping you've taken on board this morning, together with me. Let's cleanse our hands. Why does he add then? Why does he say, purify your hearts? Well, I've been thinking about this this week, and I want to say this. I think when we're in a backslidden state, when we're actually worldly, our thinking becomes distorted, the way we see God becomes distorted. When we are backslidden and we hold grudges against other people and we fight and we quarrel with each other, what happens is that our thinking about those people becomes distorted. And so we're suspicious of them. And we can't actually really engage with them because we don't really trust them because we're still suspicious of them. Are you with me? So James is saying, when you've repented, when you've understood, oh God, I'm so sorry that has displeased you, he's saying this. He's saying, don't rush on. Don't rush. Actually, admit to yourself that your thinking is distorted. Admit to yourself that there's something in your heart that needs to change and then give God the time by the power of His Spirit to change your heart as well. It's very good that you've repented from your sin. It's very good. It's the the starting point. But at the same time, purify your heart. Don't rush to say, Jesus... I admit I've hurt you. I'm sorry. Okay, now please, by your spirit, change me. I'm saying that, I want to say this to you, that might take a long time. That might take more than five minutes. I know that in my life, some people that have hurt me deeply, it's taken me years to get over it. I'm not saying that in a funny way. I'm just saying sometimes the hurt goes so deep that you actually don't know it's there. And when you begin to quieten yourself, you suddenly start thinking, but God, why am I feeling this? This has, been, this has been a long time. Why? Because God wants to heal the heart. He wants to purify the heart as well. Not just about stopping the sin, but God purifying your heart. So I want to say, when you've come to your senses, that's a good thing. James is also saying, when he says purify your heart, he's saying take some time to reflect on how your thinking has been distorted by sin, and by the worlds, and let God change you. Don't rush on. And we live in a world where we just rush from one thing to the other. And this is the result of true repentance. I'm finishing with this. Matthew 3.8 says this. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does the fruit of repentance look like? How can we know that there has been repentance? Well, I believe James has said it to us already. He said, he's used a different language, but it says the same thing. He said, wisdom from heaven described in chapter 317, wisdom from above is pure, full of peace, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy, it's full of good fruit, it's impartial, it's sincere. That is the fruit of repentance. That's how we can see this repentance of our lives. Is there purity? Is there peace? Is there gentleness? Are we open to reason or are we just saying our own opinion is the most important? Are we full of mercy? Is there good fruit, impartiality, sincerity? See, when we embrace wisdom from heaven like that, when, when we see that in our lives, we say goodbye to bitterness. We say goodbye to vindictiveness. We say goodbye to gossip. We say goodbye to confusion. And at the same time, we welcome clear thinking. We welcome a sense of purpose. We welcome direction. We welcome living for the kingdom. I trust everyone here this morning knows Jesus. I trust that we're all saved. Uh, and if you're not, I'd love to pray with you, all right? If you don't know Jesus, I'd love to pray with you. But I want to say this. God has saved us, and that's wonderful. We are, we are created, you and I are created for good works. We are created to uphold His name in this world. We, we live, that's the purpose that we're living for. If we shrink back from that great, great calling that we have by disobedience, if we shrink back from that, the result is distorted thinking. The result is unclear thinking. The result is confusion. And John 15.4 says this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We all know that scripture well. yeah? Can I ask you these questions? Just think about these questions as I finish. Can you imagine Jesus despising the poor? Can you imagine Jesus respecting only the rich? Can you can you imagine Jesus preferring certain people over other people? Like in this congregation. I like that one, don't like that one. Can you imagine Jesus holding a grudge? Can you imagine Jesus not forgiving someone? Can you imagine Jesus taking advantage of other people's weaknesses or other people's um, personalities that are different and so they put their own thing on other people? Can you imagine Jesus ever doing any of that? But we're called to abide in Him. And Psalm 24 says this, Who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in the holy place? Again, the language. Listen to the language. Psalm 24. He who has clean hands, and he who has pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord, the God of righteousness, and from the God of His salvation. It goes on, Psalm 24, to say, and open up the gates, and the King of Glory will come in. The beautiful start of uh, the psalm. The King of Glory will come in. Those, the whole world will hear when the King of Glory comes. The whole world will hear. And I want to say to you that the church has become largely irrelevant because it's grieved God. It's grieved God because it's confused. We no longer live for the kingdom and the primacy of God's name. We no longer live for the the fullness of what God wants to do through us. We are confused and worldly. And James is saying a message to us that we all need to hear. Come back to God with a pure heart of devotion. Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. Walk by the Spirit. Learn, Learn to walk no longer in the flesh, but by the Spirit of God. And that is what pleases Him. Most simple, <laughs> and we've been t- taking months to try and understand. We begin by thanking God for His grace, thanking God for the gospel, thanking God, God for everything He's poured out for our benefit on the cross. And then we start with our hands, and we purify our hands. We flee everything that we know causes Him pain and causes everyone else pain. We start with our behavior. We learn to repent of things. And, and as we are repenting of things, we say, God, I want to take the time to purify my heart. I don't want to rush. I don't want to rush. Please, Jesus, help me not to rush. Help me not to rush. Let me just do, let, do this work in me by the power of the spirit. I don't want to rush on. And as God does that in us, the king of glory starts to come in our lives. And when the king of glory starts to come in your life and in my life, the whole World will see the King of glory. I have taken a little bit longer this morning, and uh, I don't want to apologize for that because I feel like it kind of brings this section to a close, and I really feel like it's the way forward that God has for us as a community. We're passionate, passionate about the gospel, about the blood of Jesus. If you are part new in this church, I I want to just say that you're going to break bread just about every week. (laughs) Because we believe in the blood of Jesus. We're going to worship God every week. We're going to hear from His Word every week. Every week we're going to say, Jesus, please change us. We're not perfect. We, we We are journeying with you. We want to learn to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Help us, Jesus, every single week. Why? Because that's the gospel. And his power is available to transform us. We're going to trust God every week for people to be healed. We're going to continue to pray until we see people healed. We're going to trust God for people to be saved every week, even if I know that all of you are saved. (laughs) We're going to still pray. I'm going to preach like everyone is unsaved. Whoever preaches is going to preach like, wow, we want to see the gospel transform our lives. It's as simple as that, really.